Hello, um, welcome to the Tactile World. Um, this is a podcast series of interviews and discussions about the care economy. Um, my name is Alex Cummings. I am a professor of history at Georgia State University. Um, in the past, I've written a lot about the tech industry, Silicon Valley, copyright, things like that. Um, and in this uh, project, I really want to look at the other side of the economy. The part that's not um, on the front page of Wired magazine. Um, the everyday workaday life of real people um, in a hospice or in a daycare or um, to, to see like the care work that is not like um, uh, subject to uh, mechanization or greater efficiency or algorithms like a huge part, maybe a big or bigger part than uh, the so-called information economy. So that's what these stories are going to be about. Um, I hope that they're interesting. I really hope that, um, I mean, these are just really cool people and they're talking about their experiences. Uh, I've always been very inspired by um, people like Stud Sturkle, um, and I <laughs> can't compare myself to him, but um, I'm inspired by um, a richness of curiosity. And so I hope that that'll be useful with this. Uh, I really want us to rethink what the contemporary economy is in the United States and other highly um, developed countries, but just in general, really. Uh, these are challenges. These are problems we're going to be dealing with all the time, very soon, uh, sooner than now. So anyway, this is our one of our first uh, conversations, and um, we'll take it away. My name is Chrissy Yonke, and I am a clinical research coordinator um, in oncology. Um, so I coordinate clinical research, and what that means is we, at the Knight Cancer Institute, we conduct a lot of different clinical trials which are investigational medications that are trying to be approved through the FDA. Um, and for this group in particular, we work with cancer patients who have been given a terminal diagnosis. And so my job is to work with these uh, patients face-to-face -face and help administer various um, investigational medications and kind of follow them throughout their time on the clinical trials with us and make sure that they're safe, that they're not having any um, you know, adverse reactions to the medications, and that they're doing okay. Wow, that seems like such a huge responsibility. It is, but we have a lot of oversight and a lot of uh, moving pieces that um, help kind of you know, put that in place. There are a lot of eyes on everything, which is um, good. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> in this regard, it's good. <laughs> Um, so can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your early life was like? Yeah, so I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, um, and have spent most of my life in Eugene. Um, my dad was a sheriff's deputy and in the military, and my mom was a teacher. And so kind of the helping industry was instilled at a young age, um, and 
so then when I kind of got a little bit older and was indecisive about what I wanted to do with my life, I went out to the East Coast and just kind of fell into um, trying to find my place in the healthcare community. So I went to a medical assisting program for a couple of years and then started working in supportive roles throughout the medical community, like a surgical assistant. Um, and then I went to massage therapy school and I spent about 10 years out on the East Coast and then decided to come back to Oregon. And I've been here since. Those are so many different modalities of uh, interacting with people from like massage therapy to, um, you know, other types of like medical assisting work. Um, it, I, I really, it really kind of runs the spectrum in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does. Um, I think for someone like me, you know, I, I wanted to do something solid like become an RN or, you know, something in that regard. But for me personally, I get bored very quickly and I didn't want to commit to the number of years that the education programs required. So for me, I just started kind of bouncing around and taking, you know, the bits that worked for me and kind of leaving the rest and ended up kind of falling in love with the the spiritual aspect of healthcare and being able to hold space for people where they can feel safe and, um, you know, while they try to heal. Can you say a little bit about the spiritual aspect? Yeah. So it, when I was working as a massage therapist, um, I really started to feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude toward, you know, the fact that people are so vulnerable when we're seeking healing or, you know, especially if you're just looking at literally a person being on a massage table, that's an incredible um, amount of vulnerability that they're providing. And I just started contemplating that more. And people, we really do need safe spaces to be our true selves and to be able to, um, to kind of heal in whatever way that means to us. And so I found that in and of itself to be very spiritual. And so, I, yeah, I just think that um, there aren't a lot of places where people can feel that kind of safety. Yeah, a big theme uh, in the series is the idea of trust um, and what trust means to people, how trust is built or lost. Um, when somebody's opening up vulnerability, um, you know, mostly not clothed with your hands, you know, on their on their back like that's a very like the almost the epitome of like a vulnerable situation um or another when you're just talking to someone about their illness um and providing them you know some sort of um you're not reassurance because you can't like promise anything but some sort of um i don't know what would you call it i think kind of just providing some kind of time where they are able to be in a judgment-free area where whatever they need that to look like for them, it can be, you know, and no one will be judging or whatever. Um, it's just a, yeah, it's a safe, safe place to just be it, be whatever you need that time to be. And you're also giving people time, like, um, yeah. time is valuable, obviously for many different reasons, but this this idea that like time you're paying attention like i don't know i've been trying to figure this out and doing a lot of these uh, conversations 
what it means to pay attention, what it means to spend time, um, our like fleeting time on Earth, right? Um, that you care enough about someone to like pay attention to them. Yeah, yeah, and oftentimes it can be really hard because we are, as a species, you know, we we're very uncomfortable when things are not healthy, you know, or aging or um, painful. And so to be able to hold space for each other is so important. Um, you know, they say that you, you really can't take away someone's suffering. The best thing that you can do is just listen to them. You know, we can't fix someone's suffering by trying to take it away from them. And I think, um, I think, you know, it's, it's encouraging because I just have witnessed over the years that m most people need that. We have that in common. Right. Everybody has that in common. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering, like, yeah, this concept of time um, is very interesting. And so I'm just wondering what your job now, how it's time is organized. Like, are these long shifts? Are they... Uh, intermittent jobs, periods of lots of activity, then like long quiet stretches, like, um, what is you know, it's, it's a weird job because <laughs> it's, um, it operates, you know, what you do is dictated in black and white, but how you do it is all a gray area. And I think there's probably a lot of jobs like that. Um, but this one in particular, you know, you, you have certain things that you have to do to keep people safe, um, but people are people. And so we have to be able to be flexible around that. So a typical, you know, workflow for me is we can be doing anywhere from one to 30 different clinical research trials at a time. And each of those trials can enroll one to, you know, a hundred people and myself and five other clinical research coordinators are um, positioned at different uh, hematology oncology clinics throughout the community. And so it really, it can be all over the place. You know, if someone's out, we need to cover different clinics. Um, but essentially what we do is we look at the people that are coming in for cancer treatment. And we look to see if they qualify for any of our current clinical trials that could potentially extend their life. Um, and then once we find people that qualify, we enroll them, we work with the doctors, we get them on the medications, and then we follow them from there. So there's a lot of downtime when we're not busy. And when we're busy, it's impossible to keep up. <laughs> and I know that's a very obscure way of answering your question. Um, I don't think it, it's obscure at all. Um, that no. I've, you know, I've heard this with um, home health aides, with um, you know, uh, more of a case of someone who's giving long-term residential care to um, people, um, even in counseling. These, you know, uh, like a telemetry unit in a hospital. It's like you're not yeah. doing anything for a lot of the time. I mean, there's some time where it's down, and then. There's times when you really have to do things that are extremely important. Um, so how is your, that time overseen uh, or managed by others? It sounded like you had a, a significant degree of autonomy. Yes. Um, this job in particular has a, a lot of autonomy. Um, I've worked in different clinics before where there's a little bit more oversight, but 
medical research really, um, it, it, the systems are constantly changing. And so there has to be a level of autonomy, I think, with each person. You know, you have to be able to identify when there are problems and know what to do and who to talk to um, to get those problems reconciled quickly. I think, I think that's really interesting. To the extent that the average person has any idea of what a clinical trial is, um, I, I think it's, it's not a, a very obscure concept, but um, the, it, it probably seems in people's minds like very clinical. Like yeah. th- these are anonymous bodies that are sort of being tested on and like this one got sick, that one didn't get sick. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of a presumption in one's mind maybe. Um, but you're talking about it in a much more like real palpable, immediate sense of actually interacting with people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's very common and myself included when I first started, it's very common for people to think of clinical trials. You know, you think you're a lab rat, right? And I think um, that that that's justified uh, to feel that way if if it's not done correctly. And I do think that we as a society and research have come a long way and there are a lot of rules and regulations in place so that we do not go back on the way that we you know, research used to be conducted on people, um, which has a horrible history. And so I think, um, yeah, I think, I think it's changed over time. And I think that people within the community that start to do research oftentimes come back and do other clinical trials or do multiple at a time. Really? Yeah. And I think there's a level of pride that happens within people um, when they realize that, you know, yes, you may get paid for some of these clinical trials, but really what you're doing is to help people in the future. Um, And that's what a lot of the patients that we have now do because they are terminal. Um, So, you know, they're not expecting to be cured. This is ultimately for, for other people in the future. And that's really special. Wow. I was thinking about something you said a moment ago um, about people coming back and doing multiple trials. Um, I think that's really interesting in the light of a, what you said about people, the general average person on the street, what they think of a clinical trial, which is lab rat and B the fears and anxieties that people have had about the COVID vaccine thinking they're, they've, they've slapdash like rushed this through and they've not really done their homework and I'm going to end up like, something bad's going to happen to me. And both of those are based on just the basic lack of trust, right? So these people that you've worked with, I mean, they they must have a great deal of trust in the system, I would think. I think they do. Um, I also think that there's a real need for people to have community around what they're going through. And oftentimes, you know, I, I worked in diabetes research before this, and it was the same deal. Um, people really like to have other people um, interested in their diagnoses, you know, that they're not just being tr- uh, treated, they're able to contribute and have probably some sense of control. Um, I, I would imagine that would empower them in some way um, to be able to contribute something to the prevention or treatment or cure. But I, I think that healthy quote-unquote people um 
may be less inclined to just volunteer, uh, which is interesting why the COVID vaccine was so, so um, successful with recruiting. Uh, but again, like you said, that was an urgent need. So that probably weighed out. It's very interesting. I mean, people are willing to take a risk and um, that's, that's very noble, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think that most of these people would want to be considered noble. It's almost kind of like that silent hero thing where they just don't want other people to suffer. It's this, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, gift that they're, that they're giving. And I don't think it's really looked at that way as much as it should be. Right. I think that might encourage more people to participate. So, I, I mean, I, I, one of the questions I was going to ask next is like, what were your relationships with patients or clients like? But um, I feel like we've talked about that a bit. Um, unless you, there's more you might want to say about it? Um, you know, I, I don't really have anything else to say about it other than... <laughs> I think that we all have a lot more connection to each other than we realize. I think that's the, right. That's such a good point. Like the reason why we don't trust others, we don't trust the system, whatever is that we're like, so like kind of distant and separated from each other, maybe to some extent. Yeah. So I've got one final question. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Oh no, there's actually two more. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, why do you think people in general go into the field you're working in? That is a really good question. Um, you know, it's of course not easily answered, but I think that I think people in general want to do good. I think that there are people, you know, we, there's an instinct in us that we want to help other people. And then of course, as our lives continue on, we're all touched by different parts of our lives that are part of our story that may impact, you know, whether we really want to move forward or move toward those goals or, or shy away from them and do something else. I've met a lot of people in the variety of positions I've done in this field that have really had personal stories, personal interactions, um, that have just motivated them to continue. Right. I'm interested that, that actually, that actually leads to, a kind of another question I was thinking about, which is, um, the, the sort of universality of this or not, um, like is caring for a person who might be your uh, spouse or sister or nephew or something different from caring in the context of, you know, a job that you're doing, um, as employment. Is it, yeah. is it fundamentally different or is it just all the same sort of tissue? I think that, I think it's fundamentally different. I really do. Um, I can speak from my own experience, um, in losing my mom three years ago and being her primary caregiver. Um, there was a, a huge difference between caring for and with her around her death and dying process than, you know, the people that I work with now. Um, there, that's not to say, though, that there aren't people 
in the industry, particularly in clinical research trials for some reason, working as a study coordinator, I have not seen a lot of people that have made this their career. They're usually on their way to medical school or on their way, you know, it's kind of like one of those professions. So, um, so yeah, I think that there are people who stick around and kind of are more engaged and more emotionally invested. Um, but it's probably that way throughout the medical community. There are some people who are, you know, invested emotionally and then some people who just have to kind of look at everything as tissue. But I do think that when it gets down to it, a personal experience is vastly different than, than just treating, you know, your regular patients. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen so many people speak about sort of needing emotional distance from patients um, for a variety of reasons, not, you know, like practical, ethical, you know, all kinds of reasons, uh, yeah. pers personal psychological um, needs. There's also this concept uh, called the prisoner of love, which um, is that like care workers are either in, in some ways expected to do it just out of an affection for this suffering person that they're caring for. Um, and then also that they get sort of, um, sort of, uh, they feel like they can't escape because it's like, I care about this person too much. I can't leave now. They're not paying me anything, but all close to nothing, but, um, that's part of it. And so it's just a question of how, how people navigate and juggle those, um, real. I definitely identify with the last piece that you said. <laughs> I didn't trust anyone else. You know, I was like surgeon, doctor, nurse, <laughs> which I'm sure was a huge pain in the ass for people. But um, yeah, right. I, I could see that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, I think you're like me a little bit. I try. I can't stay focused on a, a one topic or a subject for a, like a very long time. It seems like you're, yeah. you're kind of restless. Um, what do you think you get from working in a lot of different fields of knowledge and practice that someone who stays mostly in the same field for a long time doesn't I'm not saying one is better than the other but just like what do you think is different oh. yeah i i really for me personally i value the perspective i feel um i feel informed from personal experience um for instance, I, I am moving on to working in the uh, palliative care and hospice area and trying to help our communities become more death literate because I have seen how clinical and how, you know, our systems are lacking a lot of things. And so for me personally, I think it gives me great insight and um, knowledge about the human experience, which is important to me. What does it mean to make the death experience more human-centric? Well, I think first, um, empowering people to be connected to their own death. For instance, um, this kind of goes against my what I'm doing for a job right now, but when we encounter um, terminal illness, you know, the, the protocol, the way that people are kind of pushed through the system is here are your options. And no other option is given. You know, you have an option for treatment, but there are, you know, many people who may not choose 
to live or die that way. And so I think, you know, looking at other cultures, um, just starting to talk about how we feel about death and dying. I think there's a statistic that, um, you know, the average time after a person goes into hospice care before they pass away is like 18 days. Um, but hospice care is like meant for you to be fully supported in your dying process. And that is, that involves a lot of things. Um, most people aren't prepared, you know, logistically towards the end. And so there's a lot of awareness that should be brought a lot of choices that people aren't aware that they can have. Um, yeah. And so I think it's a conversation, especially when you look at other cultures and how death is viewed and talked about and embraced. Um, we could do better. <laughs> I think as far as um, end of life choices and, and the culture of death in America, we could do a lot better. A lot better. Yeah. And I think too, you know, fear of death and dying, which is legitimate. I mean, we don't, we don't know until it's our, we go through it, but I do think that it stems to other issues in our lives and, and suffering in the way we live our lives. And, and that could be an endless conversation. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. Of course. Um, I was going to ask about um, being a death doula. I wasn't sure you, it didn't seem like you were bringing that up. So I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to, I'm actually, going through uh, kind of a course right now. They just, death doulas are a fairly new idea in our country. Um, and really what the concept is, is, you know, at the beginning of life, you can have doulas that assist midwives. And just like at the beginning, we, you know, can have doulas that assist the medical teams and hospice care workers. Um, and anyone can be a doula, uh, end of life doula you really do anything from, you know, sitting, what we call sitting vigil, which is when someone is actively dying and supporting the family, you know, encouraging them to go take a walk or take a shower, uh, to making food for people or running errands or, you know, so it's really just playing that supportive role, helping people understand their options. Um, there's a national certification that just came about not too long ago. And so that's the program I'm completing. Um, but I've been doing hospice uh, or end of life care volunteering for a number of years now. And it's, um, it's really special. I'm feel very honored to be a part of it. Well, that is a very, uh, that is, that seems like the right, a good, a good way to feel about it. You know, um, yeah. that people let you in that very important time. It's an incredible amount of trust. Right. Well, thank you so much, Chrissy, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, yeah. This has been so uh, informative and enlightening. Um, and um, good luck with everything you're you're working on and working towards. Um, it sounds all wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, being interested in asking me. <laughs>